Romans chapter 14. Let's pick it up with verse 20. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for you to make others fall by what you eat. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. Reference here is, of course, to the question of eating meat that is offered unto idols. We discussed that last time. The problem is not so much that there's anything wrong with the meat in, in question. It's whether other people's response to it, their understanding of it. And as Paul says, it's not worth the argument and the fight. And you don't want to be hurting somebody else, even though you may be free. And it's the same argument he had with the church in Corinth. And his approach is the same to the Corinthian, was the, the same as it was to the Corinthian church. Do not create a stumbling block. Don't cause a sister or brother to stumble. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. So even though we may be free to engage in these activities or to eat this meat or drink this particular wine, if it causes a brother or sister to stumble, don't do it. Don't do it. The faith that you have, have as your own conviction before God. Now that's an interesting statement. Yeah. The faith that you have the faith that you have, the understanding, experience, and action that you have, that it's the noun here in, in, in place, that your faith that you have, have it as your own conviction before God. You know that you could eat that meat. It's not going to hurt you spiritually. You know that it's not really been sacrificed to Zeus or Apollos. You know that it's not a consecrated food of the deity. It's not going to hurt you in that respect. But you have that faith, fine. Have it between you and God. That's where it's most important anyway. Blessed are those who have no reason to condemn themselves because of what they approve. But those who have doubts are condemned if they eat because they do not act from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Not so much a delineation of this, that, and the other, which, you know, parts of the law says you don't do it, therefore you don't do it. No. If you are not eating from, if you're not living, if you're not acting from faith, in accord with faith, then it is automatically a sin, no matter what it is. And notice what he says here. Those who have doubts are condemned if they eat. So now if you had some, use the example of the eating meat offered to idols. If you truly have faith that it's not, that idol isn't a, a true God and that meat really hasn't been consecrated for that God and therefore the substance, the, the substance and sustenance of that deity and you eating it, you're not eating Zeus and, and, and if, you, if you understand that and you truly believe that, then you're okay. But if you have any doubts at all, if that little bit of paganism is still hanging around in the back of your head, telling you that that meat had been consecrated to Zeus and is therefore now Zeus, and if you eat that meat, you're eating the sustenance that Zeus wants you to have, 
and that will then be a form of pagan worship. And if that's truly bothering you, and if that's really in the back of your head, and you are at all concerned about it, then don't do it. Don't eat it. It'd be presumptuous in eating it if you did. So be careful about it. Question. You were about to voice one. Basically, if you have a question about yourself and what you believe, then you better just leave well enough alone. <laughs> exactly. And this can apply to any aspect of your life. Like, I, I've had, always had this, this thing about not exposing myself to negative spirituality, mm -hmm. like Wiccans, and, you know, I view that as negative. And so it's like if I don't expose myself to that, then it can't hurt me. So, because I believe it is real. Okay. And because I do believe that, I feel like if I open myself up to that, then I'm... You're certainly opening yourself to something. Yeah. And, and, and you don't want to be doing that presumptuously. So I would rather be safe than sorry and just leave Actually, that's a good way to... to, to, yeah, to, to that would be to summarize this. Is it better be safe than sorry yeah. spiritually. Very good. If there's a doubt in your mind, don't do it. Okay. And the smallest doubt could spiritually, in a sense, good. kill you in that sense. Mm -hmm. You may take some good people with you, And too. we're talking absolute. Yeah. We're talking absolutes here, by the way. Uh, you might be able to make the argument, well, how can you be absolutely certain of anything? Well, I'm absolutely certain <laughs> that if this side of beef has been sacrificed in the temple of Zeus... And then I'm going through the temple, through the marketplace outside the temple, looking for meat for that evening's dinner. I'm not going to have any trouble buying that meat because I know that, that that statue over there ain't nothing. Right. And the rituals that they did are meaningless. For me, there's no issue. Right. But if some, okay, assume that no one's seen you do it, right. just there you go. that there's nobody that would be hurt by seeing you do this. Then there would be no trouble for me to take that meat home and eat it. None whatsoever. Well, yeah, but would if you had a doubt in your own mind whether it was <laughs> that, that Zeus was actually real. Yeah. Might be. And real. a former pagan might have a problem with that. Heck yeah. Also, what if your wife or your son or your friends that you're having over for dinner? Might have some questions, or might have. You some don't let them know where you bought that. Absolutely. If you got a good deal, you cook it. <laughs> Tastes like beef, but it's really cheap. It really <laughs> cheap. There you go. But the and point: this was a source <laughs> for meat in the ancient world. Smoked meat was would be purchased at the marketplaces near the pagan temples. It was one of the places you went to get meat in a city like that. Mm -hmm been cooked why not the, the priests can't eat all of it why not that was true in the in the hebrew culture you, you go purchase your meat near the temple but you knew it was kosher you knew well yeah you knew that was kosher that was okay <laughs> yeah it was a gift of the temple it was a gift of god all the fat had to go to, to god but you could have the other part i mean the, leviticus is clear all the fat belongs to the lord I want to have a bumper sticker that says that. Yeah. <laughs> all the fat belongs to the lord <laughs> I'm saying there's a lot of people that belong to God. God, he's got a lot of us. But, but the rest of the meat would be set aside for the priests and for their families. 
and for the, the and for those Levite families, income, so they would sell it. And it was consecrated to Yahweh, so it was specially blessed meat. Yeah, that's that's. Well, I bet the pagans could eat it just fine. That's exactly what I was thinking. Well, I wonder if they had a reversal there. Oh my God, I might turn into a well, Yahweh worshiper if I eat their you, meat. If you had, if you if you bought into Zeus. that theory, then you would be very careful about yeah, about which deities' temple meat you mm-hmm. ate. And if you were a good pagan and could worship at multiple temples and did the temple of the emperor and the temple of Zeus and the temple of Artemis, then it wouldn't matter. You had quite a variety. You had a variety to choose from. If you're trying to, you're trying to improve your marriage and your sex life, you'll eat that meat that was offered at the temple of Artemis. <laughs> to help you out in that department. If you're trying to get ahead in the government, you're going to eat that meat that was sacrificed to Zeus. I mean, that's part of why you did that. But if you're a Christian who believes in Yahweh and Jesus and was never a pagan to begin with, and you don't believe that those gods are ever actually gods at all, then you don't have a problem with it. But if you are a former pagan who used to engage in that stuff, you might very well have a problem with it. And, and therefore, Paul says, your faith should be between you and God. And if you're going to cause a brother or a sister to stumble by your action, then don't do it. Yeah, just don't tell them. Don't tell them. <laughs> yeah, keep your mouth shut. Sneak out with a trench coat on. I'm going to buy that, that side of beef right there. <laughs> don't let anybody... Yeah, or when you go, when I, you know, I, I try to take great care with regards to the question of drinking alcohol in public. Mm-hmm. I have to. But then yet, I, I never overindulge either. So I might have a glass of wine with my dinner and that would be it. But that could be a problem for an alcoholic. Absolutely. That could be a real problem for an alcoholic. So I have to be very careful and think about the context in which I am in and who is there when I do that. There goes a cold beer with a burger. Not at home. (laughs) (laughs) No burger. That cheeseburger and the Michelob Ultra goes good together. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Smooth. (laughs) That's the same, though, with teachers or or, or, uh, kids that are 18 and 19. Because mm-hmm. okay. I, I felt that for I was at a, a minor league ball game. I'm sitting there with the beer, and I looked across and I saw some of my kids. So I casually poured it into the Linda did the Linda thing. I poured it into the Coke glass that <laughs> <laughs> my girl, girlfriend had. <laughs> I said, I don't even believe I'm doing this, man. <laughs> I was just enjoying a really good Coke beer. But at the if ball your concern game. was for those kids to see a bad example on your part, especially since I was a science teacher. We discussed all sorts of things in biology. That's, I think, important then to an extent. But the the principle here is Paul is very clear on. He's concerned about you harming other people. In the Corinthian letters, he said the same thing. If your freedom hurts someone else, then don't exercise it. Here he says it differently. He says the faith that you have, have as your own conviction before God. You know it's perfectly fine for you to eat that meat. But if your neighbor sees you 
knows knows where it comes from, they may be hurt, might be tempted into eating it too, thinking they're actually ingesting something that was offered to Zeus. And of course, earlier on, he talks about the people who are weaker in their faith and weaker in their knowledge. Don't invite them in for arguing sake <laughs> for this whole issue and this whole business. It's not worth it. And why? Because everything comes back to the issue of Jesus is coming next Tuesday. And it's better to be minimizing the conflicts that you've got that you, you know, some of you can't avoid. So you minimize all that you can so that you can be about proclaiming the gospel, making disciples of Jesus Christ, spreading the good news as far as you can, as fast as you can, because Jesus is coming next Tuesday. Otherwise, you could take your time to educate these people and develop their faith to the point where they can have that meat too. Which also tells you that there's a, we're in a different circumstance, a different mm -hmm. social setting now mm -hmm. than Paul was in then. Well, and I, While people do think Jesus is coming next Tuesday still, yeah. for the most part, we know it's been 2,000 years, and it could very well be another 2,000 years. We don't know. Therefore, it may be more important to work on growing people's faith and improving through education and experience and then they can discover that that meat, you know, to use the illustration, although it really doesn't work anymore, that that meat wasn't offered to Zeus. And it's therefore okay to eat it. And that applies to many areas of our lives. We have the time to work on these issues. We had the time to work on slavery. We have the time to work on racism. We have the time to work on sexism. Paul didn't. He was willing to say, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. Bingo. And he treated people the same. But he didn't make it the forefront of his purpose to eradicate slavery and eradicate racism and eradicate sexism. But he still appointed women as apostles and deacons and heads of churches. What was the most important was communicating the gospel. Getting it to the far ends of the empire as quickly as he could. Because he believed Jesus coming next Tuesday, but a big part of that was, I've got to get that gospel out there so that he will come next Tuesday. So it's kind of both no and. They are, if they're confident to deliver the message, then that's... <laughs> why he was willing to, over, to, to step beyond the social norms of his day. You know, these women, house churches, Chloe, the head of a house church in Corinth, well, that's a woman. How can you make her the head of a church? Well, she had the house. She <laughs> believes the gospel. She's willing to proclaim it. Why not? That practicality was functional there. And his theology underwrote that. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. I thought he might be worried about... Um those people, when Christ comes, there's going to be, it depends what happens after that, he's going to save, but those who are open to being saved and the rest of you are going to hell, basically. So wasn't he also concerned about, if I don't get with Linda's family and Sammy before next Tuesday, holy crap, they may not ever be exposed and they may uh, not make it. That's the basic idea, try to save as many people as you can. It's a compassionate call. The desire to grow the kingdom, to build it as quickly as you can, and to grow it as fast as you can, because Jesus is coming and we don't want people to be lost. That idea is there. 
It's there in Paul's day. You hear it in the, in, in the speaking and actions of today. People today who, who have that fervent, immediate belief. And they exist. And David Koresh is of the world. Yeah. Well, David Koresh is an extreme, far-end example because he believed himself to be Jesus. Um, you don't have to be crazy as a loon <laughs> to hold the position that Jesus is returning soon, underlined soon in our understanding of it, and therefore we need to be about proclaiming that gospel. In fact, it's interesting to see how that immediate expectation of the return of Jesus actually contributed to the growth within the church of an opposition to things like racism and sexism. Some of the earliest churches to incorporate women into the ministry were those churches that had an imminent expectation for the return of Christ. These women are gifted to proclaim the gospel. Send them on out there. Think about it. Just, just a minute. Who here remembered hearing about a lady by the name of Catherine Kuhlman? Sounds familiar. Catherine Kuhlman was an evangelist and a healer in the 1960s. She was a preacher, proclaimer of the gospel. But her thing was to heal folk. And she held these great big crusade events and people would come from all around. And she'd get up there. And she was really weird. She'd get up there and she she would preach to women and men and, you know, in the 1960s. And then she would heal people. How much did it cost them? I don't know. A female Billy Graham? I don't know. Members of my family had gone to those things. But she was the one of the first big women superstars in that field. In the 1960s, she was very popular. People, preachers, Baptists, Church of Christ, they'd go to her. They'd go to her services. They wouldn't let her in their own pulpits. <laughs> but they would still go and hear the gospel from her. Because they had this immediate expectation for the return of Jesus, what was more important for them was getting that gospel out to convert sinners than, it, than the fact that it was coming from a woman. So for some elements who of the church where they believed in that imminent expectation, the gender issue became moot. At least for an evangelist. Maybe not for the pastor of the church, but for any traveling evangelist, it was a moot issue. And the race was with the same direction in, in, some, in some cases, especially in some parts of the country. Not in the deep south, but in some other areas. Race became less of an issue, especially for that type of evangelist and for people who had that kind of message. It's interesting how that worked amongst the least tolerant, most conservative segment of the church. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, echoed with the same basic reasoning why Paul pushed it so. because he believed Jesus was coming next Tuesday. They had the same expectation, more or less. Therefore, the result ended up being the same. Then when Jesus didn't come next Tuesday and time stretched on, the normal cultural expectations that the preacher has a penis kind of come into play and women are pushed out of the pulpits again. And it takes the established church to take that gospel message of the inclusivity of Jesus to all people and then push and establish women in ministry on a regular basis.
as the pastor of churches. But it's kind of interesting that early on, some of those conservative churches, nominally conservative, were actually further along in the issue than even we were. Mm -hmm. Hmm. But it was driven by that expectation. By that imminent expectation. In fact, this whole thing is. This whole attitude is driven both by concern for another and by your imminent expectation. It's better to proclaim the gospel, get them in, get them moving in the way of faith first. We'll deal with these other misconceptions later. If there is a later. But right now we got to get them in. I don't understand the logic of that because the Greeks, you usually were pretty good with their logic. Mm-hmm. And if Jesus is coming back, Yes. And he's already spread the gospel, and it's working, and it's going fast, and he's coming back next Tuesday. Are they not giving any validity to the fact that maybe Jesus can help some people when he gets back again? (laughs) Well, I guess that depends upon what happens when he gets back, as you said earlier. And that expectation, we know what Paul seemed to think that would mean, that Paul believed that at the second coming of Jesus, you would have a destruction of the powers and forces of darkness here on earth, the overcoming of the of the, the, the bad parts, for example, of the Roman establishment, the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. It's, it's really complex. You have to read 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians to get a, a picture of what he thought. Why would he think that, though? Why wouldn't he think, why would he, wouldn't he think that Jesus would take care of the innocent? Well, he does, but what, who, is the, who is the innocent? Who, who, not the Romans. <laughs> <laughs> not the pagans. It's those, not who, the Romans it's those pagans. who have heard of Christ. Well, the, the Romans ultimately. are human beings. Yeah. But they're not innocent. Well, what well, does that mean? Who is innocent? Well, they could choose. Thank you. Yeah. All of, according to Paul, all have sinned. According to Isaiah as We're well, Paul is quoting Isaiah. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, you proclaim the gospel to overcome that. And if you don't choose the gospel, we've been through this before. Once you have that choice, if you don't choose it, you're no longer innocent. That's, you, you, you are then held accountable exactly. for the fact that you have rejected it. That's what we read in Romans 1 and 2. And disagree with <laughs> or had varying degrees <laughs> of interpretation. <laughs> because the flip side of that is also true. If you have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are not accountable for it. Therefore, you are judged by the light God has given you. Which is what Romans chapter 2 tells us. I think it's strange. <laughs> <laughs> the understatement of such any questions before we move on into chapter 15? Because that's where we're supposed to be. Yes. We who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak. And not to please ourselves. Each of us must please our neighbor for the good purpose of building up the neighbor. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instructions, so that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, so that together 
you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That sounds like one. Doesn't they usually break his letters up in the salutations and endings? Sounds like the end of the letter, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And it, it sounds it, like a benediction. A, it, huh? has, it has a doxology, a benediction here at the end. May the God of steadfastness yeah. and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another. So the purpose, therefore, for everything that we read about in chapter 14 there towards the end, he kind of sums up here at the very beginning of 15, we who are strong are to put up with the failings of the weak. If you go back to the beginning of 14, welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything, and we raised our hands, while the weak only eat vegetables, and we don't have very many of them here. But, that, I mean, that was in direct reference then to the whole question of you know, eating meat that had been offered to idols. Well, he then sums up the whole point in chapter 15. We, are, we who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. It's not some arrogant thing, you know, look how wonderful we are. No, not to please ourselves. Each of us must please our neighbor for the good purpose of building up the neighbor, building up the neighbor, building them up in faith, building them up in Christ, building them up in the church, growing them. So in the end, the whole purpose of this not eating meat offered to the idols bit comes down to growing these people so that they reach the point where they understand that Zeus isn't a god and that meat isn't tainted in some way. And you can have a hamburger with it. Mm -hmm. Verse 7. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised on behalf of of the truth of God in order that he might confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing praises in your name. Come a servant of the circumcised. Who are the circumcised? The Jews. The Jews. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Christ has become a servant, has become a, a diakonon, servant, servant of the circumcised, of the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God, in order that he, Christ, might confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, all right, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So in other words, to, uh, to fulfill the promises of God given to the patriarchs of the Hebrew people, Christ has become a servant of the circumcised, of the Jews. His, he is turning to proclaim the gospel to the Jews as well as to the Gentiles. That's a fulfilling of prophecy. Thing yes, again. it is. It's exactly a fulfilling of prophecy. The prophecy being that the gospel would be proclaimed not just to the Jews, but that the the message of God, the light of God, the fellowship of of God will be opened up to the people who are not God's people traditionally, be opened up to the Gentiles, the outsiders. The minor prophets speak about that extensively. 
that that the, the, the family of God would be expanded to include people who have not been normally understood as being the people of God. And part of that involved turning to proclaim the message to Gentiles, which looks like you're ignoring the Jews. <clears throat> but then you, you're, at the same time, you're proclaiming it to the Jews, to the circumcised. And again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. With his people. So his people are not being left out. The Jews are not being left out. The Gentiles are being incorporated. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse shall come. The one who rises to rule the Gentiles. The root of Jesse, that's, that's Jesus. Mm -hmm. The one who rises to rule the Gentiles, and in him the Gentiles shall hope. So here he's citing Hebrew Bible to support the proclaiming of the gospel to Gentiles and that it, it is not done to the exclusion of the Jews, but to fulfill the promises made to the Jews. Which, of course, was one of the bones of contention that the Jewish Christians had, for sure, and that Jews who weren't Christians had. They hated the idea that these Gentiles were coming in, messing up everything. May the God of hope, here we have another one. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I had somebody tell me one time that they now know where preachers come up with all of these benedictions that they give at the end of worship services. Here we have the, the same basic thing that is said by the congregation when we hold hands. But in most churches, the preacher gets up and makes a benediction. Where do they come from? They usually come from Paul in these sequences or from the Old Testament. There are various benedictions that existed throughout the letter of the Romans, the letter of the Philippians, the letter of the Colossians, the letter of the Corinthians. You've got several benedictions that occur that you could have been the end of the, of the letter, but turn out not to be until the final very end. <laughs> final. <laughs> final. Questions thus far? Long goodbyes. I myself feel confident about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Nevertheless, on some point, in other words, he's buttered them up there. Verse 14 is butter roll. Let's butter them up. Slather it on, Paul. Make it thick because you're getting ready to say something. Nevertheless, on some points I have written to you rather boldly by way of reminder. A little butter. Because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Here he's saying, look, I've been writing to you. I know that you folk have a good understanding, that you've had a good basic background in teaching. I'm confident that you yourselves are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Nevertheless, I, I've been speaking to you. I've been writing to you, making some pretty heavy points to you in a way of reminder because of the grace, the unmerited favor given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles and the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles 
might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Of course, it's being said there to the church in general, but especially to those Jewish Christians in the church who are still kind of PO'd about Paul taking the gospel to the Gentiles. They're, I'm bringing the Gentiles to God as an offering. I'm kind of like a priest. Bringing the Gentiles to God as an offering to God. I think uh, Making Pete, them acceptable. Pete hit this before, and I can't remember your answer, but Jesus, uh, at least in the commentaries here, they're saying that uh, Jesus primarily limited his teaching to the Jews. In, in, in his lifetime? In his lifetime, Jesus limited his teaching to the Jews and the Samaritans. Now, there were people of Hebrew descent and mixed Hebrew descent. And to some few Gentiles. He went to Tyre, preached, the, you know, healed some people, taught up there. There were some Romans and some other Gentiles, to, you know, who he had contact with, but they were not major numbers. Yeah, of they weren't the crowds that he was It was the Samaritans, who are mixed Hebrew yeah. ancestry and non-Hebrew, and then principally the Jews. So we can see why they're a little bit pissed. Well, Jesus is the, if Jesus is the Messiah, Messiahs are Hebrew things. That's part of the Hebrew faith, the Jewish faith. Expectation of Messiah is not something that, that Gentiles and pagans have. The Messiah is a Hebrew concept, a Jewish concept. Therefore, the Messiah comes to us, not to them stinky, smelly, pork-eating Gentiles. So these Jewish Christians are going to get kind of pissed. I mean, here we got Jesus. We have the Messiah. What are you doing taking him out to them Gentiles there? Well, we're bringing them into the family of God. And had he said, we're making them into Jews, okay. that would have been okay, <laughs> more or less. I mean, they're no longer eating pork. They're no, they're no longer dressing unkosher. They're, they're, they're getting circumcised. They're looking and smelling and acting just like us. And we'll be okay with that. But they generally were okay with that idea. He says that he's making them an offering, which kind of sounds to me like a sacrifice. Yes, there is that element there. There is some sacrificial language here. The Gentiles are being brought in almost like a sacrifice. A gift. Uh, they are being placed on the altar as a gift to God. Just as all Christians, all believers, are being set apart, set on the altar. Saint, uh, the word saint, agios, means one who was set apart, that which is agios has been set on the altar as a gift to God. If all Christians are agios, then all Christians have been given as a gift or an offering to God. And he's bringing in these Gentiles who you would never think of letting them into the temple. And they're being an offering. And they're made acceptable because of Jesus. And Paul's job is to proclaim the gospel and bring them in that way. We can see where he might have had a little. They might have had a little problem with when he goes off your best. Not you you have to go outside of Romans and take the Acts of the Apostles and follow the process back into Jerusalem after he's evangelized in Corinth, and he writes the letter to the Romans, and he goes to Jerusalem with the offering for the church there. And when he does this. He gets intercepted and accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple because he has been accused of Jews, non-Christian Jews, of, of, of quote-unquote converting 
Gentiles without forcing them to become Jews, which sounds a little strange. But accepting into full membership within whatever community he is in, the, the Christian community within Judaism, because Judaism, Christianity was a sect or a denomination of Judaism at the time. And he was being accused of bringing in these stinky, smelly Gentiles, not circumcising them and not making them eat kosher, and then bringing them all the way into the temple. And that's when the riots broke out against him. And it was banned by Jewish Christians who were kind of pissed off at him. They're some of the brethren of James. And the Jews themselves picked it up and ran with it. And that's why he was nearly lynched. And what? if it hadn't been for the for the for the for the uh, imperial guard, he would have been. He what been. made the Christians start becoming circumcised then? Oh, modern day circumcision practices. Okay, which was more um, health oriented. Yeah, hygiene, supposedly health oriented. Although uh, the practice of circumcision that. did well, come into really. the huh? Yes. What? They, are, they don't push it nearly oh, like they, they used to. For the babies? Yeah. yeah. No, it's Absolutely. not. Yeah. Circumcision came, well, you got to remember that certain aspects of the law were adopted by the, the church in the post-New Testament period. Uh-huh. Not so much circumcision, but but some of the other features of the law were, were adopted as being important. But no, that's a modern practice. Okay. Last couple of hundred years. I always assumed that it all... Came from no. no. Yeah. That'd be exactly. No. Um, exactly opposite. Probably. <laughs> It'd be like saying we're accountants and we're doctors and we have a lot of gold because we want to be Jews. Well, I mean, that was one of the ways in which they identified Jews in Nazi Germany, other than other physical characteristics. Not all that many Germans would have been circumcised, even good Christian Lutheran Germans. Most of them would not have been. So you keep your pants on if you don't want to be figured out. <laughs> in Christ Jesus, verse 17, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to boast of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to win obedience from the Gentiles by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and as far around as Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the good news of Christ. Thus I make it my ambition to proclaim the good news not where Christ has already been named, so that I do not build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him shall see, and those who have never heard of him shall understand. He's explaining here his reasons now for moving continually outward from Jerusalem, outward, 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 taking the gospel to places where no one else has proclaimed the gospel for the purpose of making Converts making disciples, proclaiming the gospel to those who have never heard. All right, and he says that it, you know, he's almost like getting ready to explain and make a defense, a preemptive defense here of anything that might be said negatively about him. 
We actually know that's the case from the Acts of the Apostles when he gets to, to Rome. He asks what has been, he has, has been heard about him here, negative from Jerusalem, about his arrest and all. And they, nothing. They hadn't heard. This is the reason, verse 22, this is the reason that I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, i.e. in the east, I mean, I've proclaimed the gospel throughout Asia Minor. I proclaim the gospel in Greece and Macedonia. You know, the eastern half of the empire, I've pretty much taken care of. This is the reason that I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, I desire, as I have for many years, to come to you when I go to Spain. For I do hope to see you on my journey and to be sent on by you once I have enjoyed your company for a little while. So he's going to go to Rome for the purpose of then going on to Spain. And not just to see them on the journey, but to be sent on by them. That's important. This whole letter has been written as essentially an introduction to him and to his theology, to his understanding of the gospel to be proclaimed to the Gentiles, but also to the Jews. This whole letter has been written to introduce himself for this very purpose, so that they will then help him to take the gospel further. And as we talked about back at the very beginning of the study, the Roman Empire was broken up into two halves, the east and the west. The east was the Greek-speaking half, where Paul could function easily because he was a native Greek speaker. He also spoke Hebrew and Aramaic, of course, but Greek was the lingua franca, the, the principal language of the eastern half of the Roman Empire. The western half of the Roman Empire, inclusive of Italy, but certainly in Spain and in modern France, and as far as Great Britain, the principal language would not have been Greek. The language would have been Latin, the language of Italy. Now, in Italy, you could speak Greek and be understood by most people because if you were educated, you were educated first in Greek and then in Latin. That's interesting. Most of the teachers were Greeks. So they would teach Greek first and then the common vulgar tongue of Latin, the language of the imperial court and whatnot. And the, language, the common language of the people of the West would have been a form of Latin. It is the root language based upon which the Latin languages of today, Spanish, Portuguese, French, Italian, are all based and rooted in. And you can trace straight back to it. And it's that language that Paul probably did not have a good command of and would therefore have needed a translator to help him in proclaiming the gospel further west. Because your common person probably would not have been able to understand him. Whereas in the eastern half of the Roman Empire, your common person would have been able to understand him because they all spoke Greek. They spoke whatever language was their common language wherever they lived, if they lived in certain parts of the empire, it wouldn't have been Greek, it would have been some other language, but they would also speak Greek, at least enough to understand. In the western half of the Roman Empire, fewer common people spoke Greek. All the educated people did. Everybody who could read and write spoke Greek. 
And then most of the imperial soldiers uh, would have spoken Greek, or at least known it, could operate in it to some degree. But your average everyday person, unless they were a Jew from the East, would not have any functionality in Greek. So Paul would probably have needed, from the Roman church, someone to help him with Latin. Either teach him Latin, or to actually, and possibly also, go with him westward. Isn't Latin a lot easier than uh, Greek? Isn't it a simpler and more... Uh, to, to Western English speakers, <laughs> yes. But not to Greek speakers, it wouldn't be. Um, it's a less, in some ways, it's a less complex language yeah. in terms of verb structure. It That's is, Latin. but but it's Latin easier. is Latin is the basic language. And it was a simpler language then than the Latin that you learned. So his intention of coming to Rome was as not only just to see them. It certainly was to see them. Absolutely, it was the capital of the empire. That's important. But to go on further, to go westward. To proclaim this gospel where people have not heard it. Now there's been a lot of question as to how many Jews would have been present in the western half of the Roman Empire. And we don't really know how many Jews were around in the western half of the Roman Empire. We know that there were some settlements, there were some synagogues in some of the western cities. Uh, in in uh, the southern shores of uh, coasts of France and in Spain, we know that there were some Jews present. We know that there were some Jewish merchants in Britain, but we don't know about the size of the populations, and they were certainly not as great as they were from Rome east. And so he would not have as much of a ready, established structure to work with, which normally involved him going somewhere, going to the synagogue, preaching in the synagogue until he got thrown out of the synagogue and then moving next door or whatever into somebody's house and starting a church there with all the Gentile God-fearers who had been attending uh, that synagogue going with him and a few Jews who also believed that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what he did in all the other cities in the East. There would probably, with a few exceptions, there wouldn't be that much of an established Jewish society present to enable that function. So he's going to have to do it kind of like he did it in Athens, preaching directly amongst the Gentiles. And that takes more work. That's a more rough approach. It's not as nearly as easy. as It's what he did in Philippi as well. It's not nearly as easy as being able to go to the local synagogue where you have Jews and Gentile God-fearers and you sit down and teach about Jesus as the Messiah to people who have read the Old Testament, who know the prophecies, who, who have read the prophets and know they're expecting a Messiah. You don't have to start by explaining who the Messiah or what the Messiah is. They know. They may have an erroneous or a limited understanding of it, but they have some idea of what the anointed one is supposed to do. And then Paul can then build on that. Here he has to start from scratch. Principally amongst people, for most of whom probably hate Jews. That's going to be a tough road to hoe in the West. But that's his intention. To take the gospel to where people have not heard it at all. And to enjoy their company and present while he's there. And to have them help him go. And to be sent on by you. Verse 25. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem in a ministry to the saints... For Macedonia and Achaia 
have been pleased to share their resources with the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Remember, the Jerusalem church, they gave up all of their possessions and gave their money to the apostles, and they kind of lived communally. Well, this is about 58 or so A.D., maybe coming up on 60 A.D. here. Uh, Jesus has been gone 30 years. Uh, all that money is running out, and they're poor now. Okay, They're poor, the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do this, and the uh, churches, the people of Macedonia and Achaia, were pleased to take up this offering. And we heard about the offering and the planning for the offering in Corinthian letters, especially in chapters 8 and 9 of, of, um, of, the, of 2 Corinthians. Paul kind of outlines how to take up these offerings on a regular basis. And then when I come, I'll pick up the offering from you so that I can then take it to the poor in the church in Jerusalem. And his purpose for going back was to do what he agreed to do at the Jerusalem conference when they told him just to remember the poor when he takes the gospel to the Gentiles, bring back money for us, essentially. Bring back apportionments, yeah. <laughs> essentially. They were pleased to do this, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, spiritual blessings of the Jerusalem church, the first Christians, they ought also to be of service to them in material things. So when I have completed this and have delivered to them what, was, what has been collected, I will set out by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So his whole purpose is to, in writing this letter, was to prepare the way so that they'll know who he is and why he proclaims the gospel. And a proactive defense of him proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles and being the apostle to the Gentiles and opening the, the family of God to Gentiles without making them into Jews in order so that they could then send him on and help him take the gospel further west to where no apostle has gone before, to Spain. And Spain at that time was the entire peninsula, all, you know, all of Portugal and Spain, modern-day Portugal and Spain, all the way up into France. Now, France is Gaul. And to get there, you would have gone to Gaul first, and then on. Starship Enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a lot of Gaul. Yes, it does. <laughs> I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> Karen needs some help. <laughs> I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in earnest prayer to God on my behalf, that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and that my ministry in Jerus to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. The God of peace be with all of you. Amen. So he's asked, the final thing he asks them is to pray for him. Pray for him 
that he might be rescued from what he knows he's going to face in Jerusalem. He knows he's going into a very difficult setting. He's not going to be liked there. They're going to be Jews that hate his guts. They're going to be Jewish Christians who will hate his guts. And so he knows it's going to be tough. So pray for me that I might be rescued from them and might be brought speedily to you. Now, technically, that's the end of the letter. Except that the letter, you know, they didn't have UPS. They didn't have Federal Express. They didn't have postal service. They didn't have email. So how would you get a letter like this to, it's not some tiny little note, you know, it's a, it's a scroll. How would you get this thing to the Roman church? You would send it with somebody, an emissary, somebody to carry it for you, someone to take it and shepherd it carefully and safely to, to Rome. And so he gave it to someone. He gave it to Phoebe. He gave the letter of the Romans to a woman. To a very influential woman. Because he identifies her as our sister, Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sincrary. Now, there's a lot of debate, principally amongst conservative Quadrants within the church that that doesn't really mean an official office, just a servant. You know, she was the janitor of the church at Sin Prairie. Bull spent a deacon. The the term deacon, when used in that context, the term deacon diaconon means more than just a general servant. It's someone who serves on behalf of Christ. We know that the deacons were identified in the Acts of the Apostles for the purpose of serving the community, of reaching out to the community and to to give food to the poor and to proclaim the gospel, to, to witness to the good news, to speak about Jesus amongst unbelievers, to take the communion elements from the table to people who could not come to the house for worship or to people who were elsewhere in the house sick to distribute the goods of the community to others. The deacon's purpose in serving was to serve the whole community through word and deed. And of course, Stephen was a deacon, identified as such, one of the first, principal of the first. And... He, he was martyred, killed, for proclaiming the gospel. For speaking about Christ Jesus before Jews who did not want to hear about Jesus as the Messiah. And he refused to be quiet, he refused to shut up, and he proclaimed the gospel and got killed for it. Phoebe's one of them deacons. Deacon of the church of Sincrary. Now she's not the bishop of the church, like Chloe was of her church. But she's the deacon there. I mean, she's a really important person. A very important leader of that church. A deacon of the church at Sincrary. 
so that you may welcome, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Sincrary, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints. And help her in whatever she may require from you, for she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. She, she has resources capable of making her a benefactor of many, including Paul himself. So she's not just a general servant. She is the leader of the deacons at the Church of Sincrary and has some financial resources to be able to be a benefactor to many. She's going to need your help while she's in Rome. All right. So he entrusts this letter to Phoebe. And now we have the, this is essentially the commendation letter here. Support her, receive her. And then he's going to name a whole lot of people. A whole lot of people. As um, people who will be of help for Phoebe. This is sort of uh, a long-winded type of signature, by the way. These are not people going with Phoebe. These are people that are already there? No, these are people who are already in the church in Rome. Okay. These are some people whom Paul knew when he was in Corinth. The first couple mentioned here were people that he knew and worked with in Corinth who were actually from Rome and had been evacuated from Rome during a period of persecution when the Christians were accused of burning the city. And they have gone back to Rome from Corinth, this first couple. This is Prisca and Aquila. Notice the woman is named first, which means she is probably principal amongst the two of them in proclaiming the gospel. Greet Prisca and Aquila who work with me in Christ Jesus and who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. A very well-known couple, a very well-known couple within the church. Notice they have their own house church. Now remember, they didn't have great big basilicas or above ground buildings at the time. You met in people's homes. You met in people's homes. So, greet also the church in their house. So they have a house church that meets there. Greet them and greet their church. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert in Asia for Christ, someone he knows who now lives in Rome. Greet Mary. Uh, that's, a, that's a probably a Jew. That's a very common Jewish name, but not a very common Gentile name. Who has worked very hard among you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives, who were in prison with me. Oh, wow. My relatives. Huh. Huh. Andronicus and Junia, my relatives, kinsmen, fellow Jews, probably not, you know, brother, sister, cousin, although could be theoretically a cousin, maybe, but more likely fellow Jews. So here is identifying Jewish Christian elements. But notice the first name, Andronicus. 
That's a Gentile name. He must be a Hellenistic Jew. Someone who, kind of like Paul, he's bearing, you know, his, his Hebrew name is Saul, but in Greek, his name is Paul. That's, that's the meaning of that name. And so here's Andronicus with a Gentile name. He's a Jew, though, a relative, a kinsman. And Junia, probably his wife. Does anybody have Junius there? Um, they were very, very, very um, fluid in how these names were copied throughout the centuries. Um, and anytime it was a woman's name, the tendency was to wipe it out and make it into a male name. Hence mm -hmm. Junius. But in fact, it was Junia. <laughs> it was a woman. And it was probably a married couple. Um, just like Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila. It's a woman and a man. They really couldn't get rid of that. They were too important. And we knew it's a woman from Acts. So they can't convert that. But down here, when you get to... You can't handle Mary because that's obviously a female name. But Andronicus is a guy name. Well, how about... How about this Junia person? Well... Well, we can go ahead and try to convert that for a couple of reasons. My kinsmen, my fellow Jews, who were in prison with me, they are prominent among the apostles. And they were in Christ before I was. These two are early Christian converts. They were members of the Jewish community early before Paul was converted. And they are both identified as being prominent among the apostles. Here's the reason why Junia becomes Junius. Right there. Because the apostles are the... Um, the bishops are the successors to the apostles. Hence... A bishop and an apostle are equal in power and authority. And you can't have a woman be a bishop. So you can't have a woman be an apostle. To call a woman an apostle in the Middle Ages, or even up until the last century, is, even to today in some churches, to call a woman an apostle is a terrible thing. Because it would assume that a woman could proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a man. Well, women are supposed to keep silent in the church, right? Don't nod your head. <laughs> no, so that's the reason why the name got changed there. But in the Greek, in the earliest copies that we have of this letter, it says Junia. And they are identified as a couple who were in prison with Paul, prominent among the apostles, and had been Christians longer than he. Wow. And they now live in Rome. Some people, and I think they may be right, probably attribute the church's foundation in Rome to the preaching of people like Andronicus and Junia who came from the east, who came from Jerusalem, proclaiming the gospel. 
before Paul ever got there. For him to know them personally and to be greeting them there and he's coming. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ. And my beloved Stachys. So these are people he knows. All of them. Some of these names kind of reflect what they did or, or what they were. Uh, Ampliatus, Urbanus, and Stachys are all former slave names. Common names for slaves in the ancient world. So these would have been people that he would have known who had been slaves who weren't any longer. Greet Apelles, who was approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Hmm, now that's interesting. He doesn't greet Aristobulus, but he greets those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Aristobulus is probably dead. Greet my relative, my relative, my kinsman, Herodion. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Those are two good names. If you're looking for names for daughters or granddaughters, <laughs> Tryphena and Tryphosa. Yeah, I've actually met a Tryphosa. They were probably twins. They were probably twin girls. Now, we've come into an interesting collection of names here. Some of these names are known to us from history. Aristobulus. Herodian, Narcissus, those names are known to us. These are people who we know from secular histories. Herodion and the family of Narcissus are all part of the former Jewish royal family of Herod the Great, who no longer live in, in the Jerusalem area, but live in Rome. Hellenized. Hellenized Jews. Greet the beloved Persis who worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus chosen in the Lord and greet his mother, a mother to me also. Now, we're really starting to get into hot water. And also his mother and mine. Also his so mother and mine. Be his brother? We know who Persis is in history, if it's the same person. The collections of names is where we're starting to get uh, into. Uh, these names together, appearing together, uh, raise the antenna of historians who have read uh, works like the by Tacitus, for instance, who was a Roman historian from just after this period lived from, the, from 50 to 120 A.D. and wrote about the history of, the, of people in Rome at the time and made some references to Christians, not mostly bad references. He didn't like them, hmm. but he made references to them. Um, and he made and names would crop up all the time. Uh, uh, certain of these names are known from the catacombs. Christian names in the catacombs and the dating of them would place them at roughly the time that Paul would have, you know, right after Paul would have been writing. 
Uh, in fact, one of those graves, the, the you know, mentioned here is the belong to the family of Aristobulus. There is a grave to a fellow named Aristobulus who was a Christian who died in the late 50s. So he could have easily had died and Paul was making kind of a reference to that. He'd heard about it. But you get a list of these names here. You get um, Persis, you get Rufus, his mother, mine also. You get Asyncritus and Philagon and Hermas and Patrobus and Hermas and brothers and sisters who are with them. You get a list of these people. Well, you get, a, you get another list of these types of people in 2 Timothy. Now, 2 Timothy's authorship is disputed. Um, there are people, scholars, who say that Paul didn't write 2 Timothy, didn't write 1 Timothy. I believe that he did not directly write them, but that he dictated them and that the author, the, the scribe, had to wait until he was able to write them down later. And as a result, the older of them, 1 Timothy, is less Pauline in language and content. 2 Timothy, written more closely to the time that it was dictated, contains more Pauline verbs and more Pauline nouns and turns of phrase and is therefore closer to what Paul actually dictated. But both of them contain a lot of the thoughts and the word usage and all of the scribe that Paul dictated it to, who just simply remembered it. But down here at the end of 2 Timothy, there's some interesting remark. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, Prisca and Aquila, and the household of Onesphorus. Erastus remained in Corinth. Tryphonus I left ill in Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers and sisters. Now, that's the last part of verse 21 of 2 Timothy chapter 4 I want to focus on. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers and sisters. If 2 Timothy was written, was, was dictated, if it was dictated by Paul to the scribe the night before he was executed in Rome, then he's making reference here to people who live in Rome, who know Timothy, who lives back in Ephesus. And this letter is being sent to him. This list of people is one of the same lists as you have here. Now you say, huh? Well, Pudens and Linus and Claudia, those three names stuck together, we know from secular history. A Roman centurion named Rufus Pudens, who was a Christian, we know that from Tacitus, and his son Linus, who was a Christian, and identified by Eusebius as the second bishop of Rome. And Claudia, who was Linus's wife. And Claudia was the adopted daughter of the emperor Claudius. And she's known as a Christian. Well, if you look here in Romans, greet Rufus. Rufus Pudens, possibly, possibly the same person in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 21, where it's just his last name, Pudens. Here he gets his first name, Rufus. There was a Rufus Pudens, we know. 
chosen in the Lord and his mother, a mother to me also, which has generated lots of questionable, what does that mean? Spiritual mother? Well, I don't see how. Someone who mothered him, possibly, also mothered Rufus Putin's. But there's also an interesting conjecture that has been drawn that Paul's father had died and his mother and his mother and father were Roman citizens because they lived in Tarsus and all the people of Tarsus were given citizenship. So that's how Paul was a citizen. We know that from histories. Um, His father had died and his mother along with lots of Jews who lived in Tarsus about 45 AD moved westward to Corinth and then on to Rome in the late 50s and lived there. And it's speculated that this actually may actually be his mom. And this Rufus Putin's fellow, who was an early Christian, who would be this fellow here, as well as referenced in 2 Timothy, would then be his half-brother with a different father. Mom, a Gentile. must have appreciated that on her Mother's Day card. You've been just like a mother to me. <laughs> well, that's the question. That's, that's the question. Who has been a mother to me as well. A mother to me also. And greet his mother, a mother to me also. I agree. I don't think it's his mom. That's the conjecture. I don't think it's a strong conjecture. We do know that there was a large group of Jews that were moved who moved from Tarsus westward, relocated to Corinth. And some of them were Christians. We know that. But whether or not Paul's mom would have been a Christian, we don't know. She, would she be dead by this time? She'd be like 120 uh, or something? Well, I don't know. Paul would have been in his 60s at the late, at the oldest by yeah, this point so in time. So she might have been about, you know, 75, 76. That really old for that. I know, but it's not impossible. Not well, impossible. Sarah became pregnant at, what, 90? <laughs> yeah, but we know people from this period, from this era, who lived into their 80s and 90s. So it's not impossible. But it's improbable. I don't think he would have, exactly as you said, I don't think he would have referenced her quite that way. I think he would have said, Our mother. He would have said, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and greet our mom, too, or greet our mother, too, or something like that. Or maybe even included her earlier in the sequence. If his mom is in Rome, you think he's going to greet her earlier than that? I think. That, I, I think so, too. Greet, and then you get this list of these Greek names in here, all of whom are known to us from the from Roman histories as being members of the Praetorian Guard, and brothers and sisters who are with them, other Christians who live with them. Greet Philogius, okay, Junia or Julia? Who has Junia here? I got Julia. You have Julia. What is the what is the King James or the RSV have over there in verse fifteen? Julia, Junia, Julia, Julia. There are some that transfer this to Junia or Junius. 
Greet Philogius, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Now, these people he doesn't seem to know as well. All right? Yeah. He may have heard of them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to keep an eye on those who cause dissensions and offenses in opposition to the teaching that you have learned. Avoid them. For such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. For while your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, I want you to be wise in what is good and guileless in what is evil. The God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So here we have another ending of the letter. (laughs) With this interesting reference here to the God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet. That imminent expectation is Mm -hmm. present. So don't don't get involved in the dissensions and the infighting. Don't do that. It's not going to be worth it. Timothy, my co-worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sospiter, my relatives, my kinsmen, my fellow Jews. He's, a, he's making references now and greeting, and, and he's kind of asking, who else wants to send greeting while we're at it? <laughs> I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the Lord. Here the scribe adds his own greeting in. One of the few places where we know the name of the scribe, the amanuensis, who was taking dictation for all this length of time. Since since Timothy and Lucius and Jason and Sospiter all say, send greetings to him in Rome, while Paul is finishing up the letter, Tertius adds in, I, Tertius. Very unusual for that to happen. But not you know, not a problem. It, it's, it's real. There's no question as to its validity, but it is unusual that it would happen. In, instead of it being, uh, and Tertius sends you greetings. Tertius breaks in with his own personal body. Yeah. I wrote this stuff. Yeah. Gaius, who is host to me, again, the me here is now Paul again. That's why it's so weird. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now these folks are known to us again from secular histories. Erastus is the city treasurer there in in Corinth, is is very well known. And we actually have physical references to him uh, written down in, in secular works. As well as Quartus and Gaius. Now to God, and we're finally going to get the end of the letter. Now to God, who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed, and through the prophetic writings is made known to all the Gentiles, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Done.
<laughs> so chapter 16 is essentially a collection of greetings and a final salutation with a final reminder, kind of like it's thrown in there like, I forgot to mention, don't get caught up in the dissensions. But of course, he kind of forgot that he had said that earlier when he wrote in chapter 14. Um, Welcome those who are weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. It's, it's like he's reading over the scribe's shoulder now. And tossing oh, yeah. in final greetings, having paved the way for Phoebe to bring this letter so that they'll accept her without any question as his representative and being the, the true bearer of this letter. And greetings to all these people in the church who he knows personally, all these people he's heard about. Receive her, receive this letter, and get ready because my intention is to come see you. Uh, did they used to read these things backwards? No. Why would you introduce the person that's carrying this letter after all the theology and all the sermons at the very end, giving her validity at the very end? Because it is possible that it wasn't attached to the original actual scroll, okay. but on a separate piece of parchment or, or papyrus that was wrapped around the outside of that one. Why didn't we put it down that way? <laughs> it would have been weird to start it reading that way. But, but that would not have been uncommon to have a letter of commendation that goes with the actual letter. It would have wrapped around it. And then when it was copied down by the person who copied all of Paul's letters, they, they put it at the end. They stuck it at the end. Just as there's two separate, there's three letters, possibly four letters of Paul in 2 Corinthians. And their order is debatable as to whether or not they're in the right order. They're not in the right order, but, but it's debatable. And then they're stuck in there. In between them is chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, which are two completely separate letters that were sent to two different sections of the church in Achaia and in Greece to encourage them to take up offerings for the saints in Rome. I mean, for the saints in Jerusalem. And they're inside the middle of the letter to the Corinthians. They were all kind of collected together at the church in Corinth. And when the scribe came along, and he didn't really know what order they were supposed to go in, so he did the best he could. And then that's how we have them in the order we have them today. Likewise, this, this final letter of commendation was probably wrapped around the outside of the scroll. So it, when you opened it up, you'd first take that off, and you'd have the greetings. And you'd read those greetings in their own little benediction at the end of it and then you can set it aside and open up the full letter itself and see that would make more sense as to why he's talking about the quarrel right at the beginning too. don't quarrel at the beginning here you're going to hear a whole lot of stuff that you're going to want to quarrel about that the church has quarreled about for centuries okay well we wrapped it up in an hour and a half you have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2009 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved.
For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.